reading and preaching for you out of Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. Hear now the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, and this is Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, as I mentioned before, we pray that you would help us be postured upon our face and humility in this passage, that we would be provoked to see the idols of our heart and that we would hear the message of Jesus and his resurrection, his conquering over these idols, and that we would surrender any grasp we have on these idols, on these worldly philosophies, that we would be freed from the captivity of the deception of sin, and that we would enjoy the wonder and the goodness of your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you recall in the last particular account, we had Paul and Silas in Berea, and we saw that the Bereans were more noble than the, those in Thessalonica. And, but even still, the, those in Thessalonica came and caused trouble and created the, the common reaction of those who are bent on jealousy, who are built, bent on their own kingdom, and could not respond with reason, could not respond with the word of God, could not respond in truth. And so they resorted to violence and rioting, and they ended up ultimately having to cause those who were there to preach the gospel, to preach the freedom of the things that they were captive to, those had to leave. And Paul was the first one out the door, and he made it to Athens. And as he was waiting on um, Silas and Timothy to also join him, as he had sent instruction to those in Berea to send them along, He was observing the things that were in Athens, and I would say that most of us, somehow or another, whether in public school or homeschool or private school, we would have learned a little bit about the Athens, and we we would see the Athenians. We we know about 
the Greek gods, and we can imagine here what Paul likely saw when he saw that the place was full of idols. Can any of you all tell me what, what were these idols that Paul would have likely seen? Let's see. Gods, what what kind of, what, are, what are God's idols? What are some of those gods? Pharaohs. Well, not pharaohs, but they were real statues. What's that? The Greek gods, right? As I mentioned before, <laughs> who were some of the Greek gods? Athena, give Athens. What's that? Y'all, some of you all know your Greek gods. Well, the, we're <laughs> right. Yeah, I think so. Some of Zeus. Yeah, we're just trying to imagine some of. The, I was thinking that maybe most of you all maybe had that more recently in your mind. He would see the Greek gods that they would have been worshiping. But the interesting thing that we see here in this particular narrative is that Luke is not interested necessarily in talking about the Greek gods and. It draws the question here that Paul, it says that he was provoked in his spirit, that he was frustrated again. Very similar kind of language, different word, but similar posture that what he had when he encountered the little girl that had the demon and that it weighed upon him when he was encountering this one, recognizing the captivity and the hold that the spirit of darkness had upon this one and on the area around him. And once again, here he is in a particular region. And as soon as he gets to Athens, as he observes that the city is full of idols, he is provoked. He is moved. And the, the word, every word that I could find in the description of this Greek word is that he was not just upset, but it actually affected him physically. James and I were talking about certain struggles that we can sometimes have that are both a spiritual and also physical battle. And here was Paul in this particular description of this word that I've seen, that the best way to describe it is that he was, again, he was, he was wearied by what he was seeing, and it was affecting him deep inside of him. And so I don't think that if we think about that particular level of reaction, that it would have been just due to a bunch of statues of naked people. <laughs> I'm sure that was still bothersome to him, and it would have been something that would have you know, caught his attention. But I think he was seeing something here in Athens that was going deeper to the heart. And the reason why I think so is in the direction in which Luke takes this particular narrative. So right off the bat, I wanted to, to try to redirect our focus. As we, For any of us who may have studied the history of Greek mythology or anything going on in the historic Greek and in Athens, that it wasn't just the fact that you would see these particular statues. That is not the focus. It doesn't even mention statues or anything like that. But he could tell that the city was full Full inside, I think the reaction that we were getting out of Paul is that these particular statues were representative of something far darker and far more consistent than what he was seeing when he encountered the girl that was possessed by a demon. He was seeing that these people had a darkness inside of them. 
And so the first thing he did was to follow his same path that he always did. He starts out in the synagogues. He goes to the place where God's people are supposed to be. Where God's people should be gathered around in word and prayer and in fellowship with each other. And he goes and he reasons with them that as he acknowledges that these people are captive to idolatry, he first wants to go to God's people. And so there he encounters the Jews, and he also encounters those who are devout persons. And that basically, again, is just more terminology for those who are God-fearing Gentiles who have adopted the general understanding of this God, Jehovah, and they are there also before the word, before the law, being proclaimed. And Paul first goes to them. And then you see that not only does he go and reason with them, he goes to the marketplace. And we saw that before when he was in the marketplace, that's where they would often the people in the area would go and take um, them whenever they were having some place of preaching the truth. They would go before the marketplace, and that's where the riots were. That's where the people of the community were. And he was there also. So he was not only there weekly, there preaching in a synagogue, but he would go out into the marketplace. He would go out to, it says, to whoever would be there. And so just whoever. He, was, he would be out preaching and reasoning the gospel to anyone that he would encounter. And then sure enough, because of his interaction with that community, both in the synagogue and also in the marketplace, he, there was a reaction. Now, for us, we, you know, we don't have the same kind of um, place where we have a, a center of marketplace where people go. We have maybe a diverse different places. You know, there, are, there are things that we could consider maybe in the universities. We also have places where people shop. I went to the Pinnacle yesterday to have lunch with Pastor Damon Joseph, and it's a, it was a madhouse at the Pinnacle yesterday. It was just amazing. That, they had police. It took me 20 minutes once I got to the Pinnacle to get to Chick-fil-A, and then I got there and there wasn't any parking. I had to go park further away. It was just all of this activity bustling. You, know, you would think that the economy would be doing really well. But you can tell if you do people watching like Jennifer and I do, and you sit and you watch people whenever you go somewhere, you start getting some, you start understanding a little bit about what's important to them and maybe how they think, or at least what you perceive and how they think. And sometimes it can be kind of scary <laughs> what you see. Sometimes it can be encouraging. We went to the uh, Lebanon downtown 4th of July parade this year, because that's where I work now, is in, in Lebanon. And we were encouraged. It was this quaint little place, but we, we, for one, we saw a guy going down the street in a float, and he was preaching the gospel. You know, it wasn't necessarily our typical style, of my style of preaching, but he, he listened to what he said, and he was proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And you see other people, and you see the things that are important to them, the things that they would parade down their marketplace, their, their center of activity. And we're like, you know, it's, 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 it's a hometown. Now, granted, we know that these people, too, just like we can go into the room. And it shouldn't take us very long coming here together to notice, maybe even in our conversation, you start noticing little veins of our own personal idolatry. But here, Paul, as he goes into Athens, he sees that the place is just full of idols, full of idolatry, and he is grieved by it. And I think we have some instruction here as we think about the fact that Acts is portraying to us two particular things. One, the nature of, or well, three different things. One, the nature of the overarching kingdom, 
And then the particular character of what the church should look like as the spirit is being filled out and the kingdom is being furthered. And then also the calling to spread that kingdom to the lost. We see that we can tell that if this is the way the first missionary journeys of the New Testament is, that there is a posture, an instruction of posture of how we should be in our lives as we are considering that we are all missionaries for the name of Jesus Christ in some ways. Even today as we're coming into here, that we should remember that just as we are like the synagogue, we are those who are gathered around the word and prayer that Paul likely still saw how idolatry was impacting God's people and lost people. And he was seeing things. He was observing that there is idolatry. Now, that can be a very dangerous thing for us, that if that is our mindset, I know it's a very dangerous thing for a pastor or a minister when you're thinking about the difficulty and destruction of satanic's posture or satan's posture in the world and what he's tempting and lying to people about to start looking for that around you start seeing it very quickly and and you can be provoked to great distress but if we're going with the mindset that lord we are asking you to be able for us to be able to place the gospel in these moments when we are encountering idolatry And if we're holding on to the hope and the power of the gospel, I think it's important for us to go with eyes looking for idolatry. First, looking in the mirror in ourselves of how we have our own idolatry, and then repenting and trusting in the Lord and wanting to give that freedom from that idolatry to other people. So we should be looking for it, and we should be provoked. And I think one of the dangers that we have as a church is that when we're not looking for idolatry, we're not observant of it, we're not paying attention to it in our own lives and in others, and we're not really provoked by it. We're not grieved by it. One, we don't even recognize it when it's there. Here, when we see this this word of Paul being provoked, that he could see it very vividly. Now, if you saw someone in here that was known to be one of divination or one who was known to be demon-possessed was in the middle of us, we would all be like, oh, I can sense that there is a demonic spirit in, in the middle. And we're like, no kidding. <laughs> you know? But do we have the same observation? When here we actually, one of the unique things about this particular narrative that it's generally peaceful. There's no riot this time. Now, they do take him, and it doesn't really describe what they mean by taking him. You know, you would think based upon their, in the overall narrative here, that it may not have been so much of a violent thing, but they brought him to a place where he seemed like I would think that he would be willing to go, to go to the leaders of that community and that kind of thinking and had a conversation and had a debate. They were actually debating. There was not the violence. There wasn't being thrown in the prison. There wasn't the call to beat one another. It seemed to be a generally peaceful atmosphere without the same kind of drama of demons and riots. And so it would be easier not to see the places of idolatry that are around. You might actually enjoy 
the atmosphere that would have been in Athens, especially when you start understanding who these particular philosophers are and what they believe. They're not those who would generally be about that which would be anti-peace or disruption. They would have tried to discipline their minds and their words to be those that are peaceful. In fact, if we look at what we see here from Luke, he encountered Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, I think it's important for us to understand what these philosophies were focused on. Does anybody know what Epicurean philosophy centered on? Food? Don't, don't talk about food right now. We've got a little bit more time. <laughs> pleasure. Food brings pleasure. So, yes, there would be the association in that sense. What else? Yeah, gluttony could be a, a, a byproduct of it. Though they would, they would, they don't like pain. So you know, sometimes gluttony would eventually bring into pain. So they would try to to remove themselves from pain. They they like the good life. That's a term that I kept running across as I was reading about Epicurean philosophy. Was to highlight the good life, to highlight a peaceful, smooth, pain free. The interesting thing that even though their city was full of these statues of gods and different people and different characters of, of in mythic the, um, mythology, rather, they, they really thought that the gods were kind of distant from them. They were kind of remote. They didn't really see that the gods were real in their life. And so the things that they really focused on wasn't so much the worship of these gods, but they were worshiping these ideas and this desire to have a good life, a, a peaceful life, one that is pain-free. Now, who, doesn't that sound horrible? That just sounds t- terrible, doesn't it? <laughs> like, no, it sounds really quite, quite wonderful. In fact, I even have a pastor friend one time. I remember one time when we were talking about different kind of marketing material for the church that he, he said, well, what did you put on there? The good life. And I was just kind of like, oh, my goodness, you know, that sounds a little scary. Is that really what the Bible describes Christianity to be like, is to, to be the good life? And it was funny, that very week, I remember going through the drive-thru at the bank, and or the teller, and I was looking as I was waiting for the exchange of whatever I was doing to occur, there was this little brochure in the window for me to, to get a loan, and it says, you deserve the good life. Therefore, put yourself further in debt. <laughs> you know, you know the, your, the house you may have paid off, you know, why don't you go into debt for it so that you can go on vacation? <laughs> or something like that. The good life. And it was like, ding! You know, you see a little sparkle corner. That's the same kind of thing that was in this Epicurean thought. And it's very alluring. It's Something that we, I think, really, this particular account in Acts may be the area where we are the weakest. You know, none of us are Orthodox Jews that have been waiting on the Messiah. You know, so we, you know, I don't think there's any Orthodox Jews in here that are just, you know, newly introduced to the idea of Jesus as the Messiah. So, you know, we're not in that particular place. Now, some of us do have these loyalty issues with intermixing the state and the, the gods of this world into 
religion, and it, it is happening here also again. But this particular philosophy of life that these Epicureans were celebrating may be hitting more in the middle of the heart of where we are as American Christians particularly. Because it is the thing that we typically advertise is what will happen to you if you commit yourself to Christ, you will live the good life. I know that's what's typical when I hear about the stories of people who are coming out of the jails or coming out of addiction. It typically has to do with this new, you're a good citizen now. You can hold a job instead of just you know, being tied to your addiction. And things can be more generally peaceful in your home. And it's like, oh, this is a good thing. You can have the good life if you follow Jesus. Now, I think that the benefits of being freed from addiction and the captivity of those things or the captivity of a prison is a very positive thing. I'm not saying that. But a lot of times that is the essence of what we preach when we preach the gospel, that we're ultimately looking for the good life. The problem with that, and I think we see the reality of that, that even though that might be the idols that we may worship more than anything else here in this particular nation, we know that it's impossible. We know it's impossible due to the thing that we read in our confession today, because We are all corrupt, and we are around corrupt people. We are impacted by an inheritance of sin that manifests itself very clearly in our own thoughts and actions. And if we have made these particular philosophies a God, we know that it's going to lead to frustration. We know that it's going to lead to a pessimism and a hopelessness and a depression. We often tend to think that after we see that it has been failed to be able to achieve these particular philosophical gods, that maybe something out there, circumstances or other powers that be, have taken away our opportunities to achieve these gods. And so we're often led to victimhood. And you can see that. You can see that we celebrate both of these things pretty heavily. We have, on one hand, we have this very longing desire for this good life, and we shape in our mind how we can achieve that. And it doesn't matter what you believe. You can be, you know, you could claim to be an atheist, but you're going to still want to have a good life. You could claim to be a Christian. It's all about a good life. It's all this where we all are unified in this marketplace of ideas. We are unified in this, this very tight desire of having a good life. But we can see the reverse side of that, that most of the people, as we are here in this place, we also know that we are ridden with depression, victimhood, hopelessness, and despair because these gods don't exist. And so then you also have the Stoic philosophers. What are, what are some of the attributes of Stoic philosophy? Stoic is it's a it's a word, but what does that mean? What, what kind of context? So he's like, oh, he's awful. He's a, he's he's acting all stoic. What does that what does that typically mean? Not showing emotion. Not showing emotion. Have a stiff upper lip. 
press on through the difficulty. <laughs> it's probably, it seems like Epicurean thought leads to eventually Stoic thought. You know, it's kind of like, well, that was a completely failed idea. All of my hopes and dreams have been dashed, and I could either just kill myself and, and end it all, or I can try to be Stoic about it and just press on. Well, the Stoics are more than that. They actually they have these virtues. Anybody know what the four vote virtues of Stoic philosophy, or the highest four. There are other virtues, but they had these four particular virtues that they considered to be the premium virtues of their philosophy of life. No laughing. No laughing. It, don't see that in there, but it's... It, <laughs> it's maybe close. You're probably not too far. Anybody? You told us this morning. <laughs> My family's not allowed. Sorry. They always get a preview. Wisdom, justice, courage, and temperance. Or a word that we use more often is moderation or balance. These are horrible ideas, aren't they? Just horrible. My point in saying it like that is that all of these particular philosophies are philosophies that we would... It say that we adhere to also. Would we not say that we, we like wisdom? We definitely want to be people of justice and courage. And we understand the necessity of moderation, especially when we're thinking about food. <laughs> or at least we ideally think that. We don't always practice that. I had to tell me about that restaurant name again that you were talking about earlier. Maurice. He said he didn't eat for two days. <laughs> it's like so good. But they are known because of these philosophies that are actually philosophies of earthly wisdom, earthly justice, earthly courage and temperance. They have a different than idea of what we are thinking when we think about these as Christians in light of God's word. These were man-centered wisdom, justice, courage, and moderation. It was an inward. They also really believed in steadfastness. And that's a, a word that we see in the scriptures very clearly as a good thing. They thought friendship was very important. But if you read deeply about Stoic philosophy, the idea was for the self-betterment that you wanted to surround yourself and to suffer through the friendships to build you into this ideal person. The interesting thing about all of these statues of the gods that were very Poetic in the sense that all of the gods that they say that they adhere to are actually just images of themselves. Even their characteristics, if you know Greek mythology, they're very much human in their passions and reaction, in their adultery, in their lives. The things that Paul was seeing here is that ultimately they had very articulated, very well articulated their own religion of self-worship. They were seeking the things that were good, and they had a taste of what these things might look like, but they were all centered really ultimately in themselves. In a sense, it does seem like Stoic thought was a reaction to failed Epicurean thought because there was this passive resignation, and they would have to make themselves strict and self-disciplined to try to press on in that courage. But they, in their mindset, was not so much thinking about the gods. They felt like everything was just brought to them with fatalism. And so that's why they would try not to overly react to circumstances, that it was just kind of like, 
whateverism. And there was an emptiness. Again, another hopelessness that they would have to try to discipline themselves to get through this life. Knowing the realities of Epicurean thought was foolish, and they would just try to try to have these virtues so that they could maybe somehow or another be able to live with themselves in light of what they thought was wisdom and justice and courage and have some kind of balance in their life as they acknowledge that there really isn't anything to hope for in the end. Understanding these particular philosophies that were going on in Athens at that day, you could understand that when Paul came in and started teaching about Jesus, started teaching the things that Jesus was preaching and was talking about what he was ultimately doing and who he ultimately was and his big picture of redemption and that there was a cross right smack dab in the middle of this story where there was this one who is the ultimate God, who is the God of all gods, who actually was walking toward the cross, not seeking the good life, not seeking self-fulfillment in the sense that we saw of the Epicurean thought. You could imagine the tremendous crash and reaction of what they were hearing when they heard Paul speaking about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus King, Jesus Conqueror, and him crucified and dead. And then resurrection and life and renewal and continuation, a hopefulness of something beyond the life that's right smack dab in front of them. It was completely of something of another world being preached before them. But then look what it says that all of these Athenians and all the foreigners that as he is there at the Areopagus and he is before the leaders of that place and everyone's gathered around, they had this interest in what he had to say because it says that the Athenians and all the foreigners there, that all of their time, and this interesting wording that they use there, it says all that lived there would spend their time in nothing that's a lot of time and all of their time except telling and hearing something new. Can you see the picture that's being painted here by Luke? That even though there's the backdrop of these statues that you see these people that have this life, this good life, but this kind of frustrated good life pursuit that has turned into really a passive resignation that it's all hopeless and just fatalism and might as well just press on and discipline myself to just try to hold on to life as I can. And then while we're here, we're just going to keep flicking through to everything new, repost, flick, review, just amusing ourselves to complete death. Just really stuck in a cycle of our idolatry, captive to a place where there really is no hope that the God that we even believe, the gods that we believe in are either far away or it's really just this kind of agnostic, whatever, it's all for naught. It's all whatever fate brings our way. We just try to hold on to ourselves in the meantime. 
There's a, a word that's often describing this particular religion overall in Athens, and it was syncretism. It was a blending of all of these philosophies. And we see that Paul first went to the synagogues, and surely it was there also in Athens, just like it is in any city. There's going to be a, an effect. Hopefully you would think that the places of worship and the places in the true God would have an effect on its community, but it's very inevitable that it's going to be a mixture, that the communities will also have an effect, or in their failure in the churches, they will also bring in failure in their communities. There's a syncretism of philosophies, all of these different ideas, they're being all merged together, and just to survive through life, they're just amusing themselves to get to the next day. And if you go to Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, you can see all of this that most memes are about some way of highlighting your own personal characteristic or how you were depressed about this or how this or that. And it's really just this world full of these gods that just look like ourselves with our own weaknesses and our own failures. And we have these words like wisdom and justice. We have these virtues that we try to say we hold on to, and we are easily captive to leaders telling us what is the virtue of the day and what our actions should look like. We're always flicking through the news, looking for the next virtue that we need to post on our page and say that we support so that we can try to live with ourselves in this tremendous confusion. A band that I am fond of for strange reasons, Linkin Park, um, has a song that... <laughs> He's laughing at me. I'm opening my soul here. <laughs> the lead singer of Linkin Park killed himself. Um, he, if you listen to his songs, you can understand why. And I think that's one reason why he is so appealing to people... And our world is that there's a you know, cool sound and everything, but if you listen, there's this pain and this hopelessness of all of these worlds, worlds crashing down on him. And, and he finally came to a, a very clear conclusion that it's all for naught. The last song he sang, he sang in a, with a duet with Kiara, and it was called Heavy. And he was talking about how the world just felt so heavy. And there's a, a chorus that he repeats over and over again in this song. He says, I know I'm not the center of the universe, but you keep spinning around me just the same. I know I'm not the center of the universe, but you keep spinning around me just the same. I'm holding on. Why is everything so heavy? The reason why Paul was grieved when he went to a place that probably most of us would find quite pleasant. That when we would hear their philosophies being preached, we would say, that sounds good. I'm for peace. I'm for the good life. I'm also for wisdom. I'm also for you know justice and all these things. But what we see is that these are all people who are believing that the whole world was revolving around them. That the gods were far off or non-existent. A very impersonal connection to the very creator. And you see here at the end that even Stoicism is going to drive people to just want to end it all. You can see the transition from Epicurean to Stoic thought 
in a life of just amusement, of continuing to see these things and posting new things and just trying to find a way to get through life, will eventually follow the same path that this guy followed. And here's Paul. He comes in and he's teaching Jesus in the resurrection, Christ and Him crucified. 1 Peter 3.8 teaches us that, that there's suffering, but there's a suffering for what? For Christ's sake. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 6 that we have to guard this deposit that's been given to us to avoid truly irreverent babble of this contradictions to what is falsely called knowledge. And by who does these things, who hold on to these fake philosophies, will swerve from the faith. Isaiah says there's no peace for the wicked. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. He's come to do surgery against this deception that the world is all about ourselves. So that we may actually have true peace. Proverbs 1 teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In wisdom, fools despise wisdom and instruction if there is no fear of the Lord. This God who created all these things is not far and away. He is right before us. He has made himself very clear. We are a very unique planet. We have not yet found a planet like this one who has an atmosphere that can observe the wonders of who God is. Most places don't have an atmosphere at all that you could actually live on, so don't even try to visit those places. But if you could live on there, you would either have not any oxygen or you couldn't see out to see things that you would need to praise. God has made himself very apparent, not in the image of people who are sinners, but he has made his creation to bear the image of him that is now in corruption because of sin. In Deuteronomy, we see that we are to be strong and courageous and not to fear or be dread of those in the world, but to fear God. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you, who does not leave you or forsake you. We can be strong and courageous because those who are in Christ have God with them. In 2 Chronicles chapter 17, 6, Jehoshaphat had his heart was full of courage in the ways of the Lord. Not the philosophies of man, of just trying to bear through life. In Hebrews chapter 12 and in Revelation 3, it says that those whom God, our Creator, loves, He reproves and disciplines and presents painful circumstances. The more we try to flee away from or to ignore pain or to actually accuse God of some wrongdoing when we suffer pain, we miss out that it says in his word that we will often be reproved and disciplined because he loves us. He's not an impersonal God. He teaches us, and we know this by even the earthly fathers that God has given us, it says in his word. We know that that is truly love. We know that the screaming and kicking kid in the marketplace that gets no 
reaction from the parent is not being loved. That's not the reality of a loving God. A loving God is either going to pick up that child and take them out or or hug them or talk with them, walk with them, shape them, guide them and lead them, love them. That is the kind of God that we have. It says, for a moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The goal of this particular God is not to continue to be made himself into our image, but to make us into the image of his son, of righteousness. That's why it's crazy for Paul to come in there and says that this has to happen. This Messiah must come. This God must come and take on flesh and go to a cross so that you can achieve the greatest of all virtues. You can be with God and walk with God. It did not make any sense. We live in a culture today where... Most evangelicals celebrate that on television there is a show called Chosen. And they're, oh, they're finally they're celebrating Jesus. But I think we have to be really careful there. I saw a review of the television show that I think really hits the nail on the head. It said, and it was something that they were advertising, finally a portrayal of Jesus that I could follow. That they have finally shaped the TV show to a place where it would be a Jesus that I would even like and would accept. That Jesus has been proclaimed in the marketplace for a long time. From the very beginning of time when Jesus was proclaimed to Adam and Eve, that because of their corruption, God would then have to bring a Savior to rescue them from one. It would not be one that we would want to follow. And to close, I will read for you John chapter 14, verses 25 through 31, the very words of the true Jesus. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away. And I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. But he has no claim on me. I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. When Jesus came, he spoke of his death. Peter and the other disciples, they could not fathom this presentation of the gospel. They thought it was some kind of weird babbling that Jesus would have to go away, that 
God would have to go away. It's crazy enough for them to even imagine that God was right in their midst. But then he had to face the cross. And he says, but peace I live with you and I leave it with you through the very centerpiece of what is in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit. That this God would be dwelling amongst us, inside of us. That in all of these places where we have corrupted all true virtue and tried to shape everything that God has given us into some kind of false God, that this Holy Spirit is going to come and it's going to cleanse us and bring us peace. But it has to be done through the cross. It has to be done through pain and the death of death. So that there will be the life of life. And so that we all would be able to rise up from here and be with Jesus, with the Father. This is crazy stuff to the marketplace. This is crazy stuff in the church. When you consider your own lives, let this come to heart here. Try to pray that God would let you see how our lives are so full of these idols. And let it provoke you. Let it draw you out of this captivity. When we hear about Jesus coming to preach to those who are captive, understand that Paul came here and those words had to have echoed. There's no mention of prison here. But he saw how so many people were captive to falsehood. And I tell you, it's a scary thing to pray that God would make you free of that captivity. I don't think I'm free of it. But I know that recently I've had some some pretty serious heart surgeries that have put in front of me just how... Tightly, I'm holding on to these false Epicurean and Stoic gods. And we all know that we are holding on too tightly to this constant amusement of life. May it be that we realize that this is where we have life. This is where our minds ought to be centered. May it be that we are holding tightly to that, knowing that Jesus has sent us his Holy Spirit, to bring life and peace, true life and true peace into our lives. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for admonishing us, for disciplining us.